Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Dallas Willard once said, It is easy to think that the Christian life is just one more burden to add to your already overwhelmed rhythm. But Jesus does not offer more on your plate, but offers you a different plate entirely in which you can approach your whole life. It's one of my favorite Dallas Willard quotes because it strikes a chord in me as someone who's followed Jesus for a long time who often approaches the idea of following Jesus as an addition to my life. Something that I add on in terms of my work life, my Jesus spiritual life, and my hangout with my kids, and I try and fit it into my calendar. But that is a radical misconception as far as what Jesus is inviting you and I into. We're being invited into a complete life reorientation where he is now the epicenter in which everything else revolves around. And that's essentially what the letter to the Ephesians is trying to do. It's reminding them that what Jesus has done for them is more than just a simple nicety or addition to their life. It is the giving of a brand new life. And the way Paul does this is he refers to this language of formerly, but now. You were this, but now you're this. This Just a few examples. Number one, he says, we were dead in sin, but now we're alive with the Messiah. We were separated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. We are foreigners, but now we are fellow citizens. We were darkened in understanding, but now we learned about the Messiah. We have put off the old self and we put on the new self. We were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. He talks about this idea of, of new life. He says, we've been chosen and adopted by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. We have been sealed with the Spirit. We have been given resurrection power. We have been given eyes to see the Lordship of Jesus. We have been brought from death to life by grace through faith in Christ. We have been raised and seated with him in the heavens, and we have been created for good works. And so Paul, right out the gate, spends half of this letter just reminding him of this new life that has been given to them. And then he spends the second half of the letter saying, this is how you now live in response to it. This is your position and this is now the product of that position. This is what's going to do. And he summarized this by one verse. Is now live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Let what has happened in you now translate into the world around you. And at the very end of the letter, Paul models something for us that I want us to catch this morning before we end the series. It's really a powerful way to conclude this letter and to conclude the season as a church. And he offers them three things that they need to know that he again models for them. To know your need, to know your assignment, and to know your reality. To know your need is kind of where Paul ends his letter. In verse 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare fearlessly as I should. Uh, I love 
this moment where Paul has just finished talking about the, the armor of the Lord that we carry with us, that we're not fighting against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities of the dark are around us. And he just ends up with saying, we have to pray. If you notice, he says pray five times in two verses. But there's this thing he says in there that I think is especially poignant for us in our moment of time when he says this, pray for me. And Paul just finished writing part of the Bible, right? He seems like he's doing pretty well in terms of like living a life fully devoted to Christ. But he ends this letter with this posture of humility and this kind of revealing of his own humanity when he says, would you pray for me? And the reason why this sticks out to me is I find it increasingly harder in the culture that we live in and the older that I get to ask for prayer. It's easier for me to like, I'll pray for you. Like, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm totally praying. And, and I, the best I can, if you ever hear that from me, I mean it. Sometimes I'll even write it, I'll calendar it in my phone to make sure I'm praying for these things. I don't say that lightly. But it's much more rare for me to reach out and say, would you pray for me? And so as I come across, I see Paul, this spiritual giant, just end his letter, not with this kind of big pomp and circumstance. He just ends it with like a request. Pray for me. I think one of the most powerful moments uh, I've ever experienced in ministry came when I was a youth pastor. We were youth pastoring in San Marcos for about eight years before we planted light. And there was a, a time early on as youth ministers at that church where we had just gone, undergone just the worst um, grief and loss and trauma we had ever had and the losing of Jen's father in the way that he passed away. And our souls are just reeling from that. At the very same time, our youth group starts to just blow up. Like students are literally getting saved by the dozens. And we're simultaneously feeling weaker and weaker. I get, I get hit with this really, really intense vertigo. I wasn't able to drive for a couple of months. I was feeling anxious. My wife is deep in depression. And we just have nothing to give each other to our youth ministry. All the while, it's just like growing like a weed. And I remember one night showing up to this room just filled with students. And I had no emotional bandwidth to even write a sermon. And I get up, and Jen's in the room, and at that time we just had one of our kids, and I just sat down on the stage and just buried my head in my hands. I'm like, guys, I'm so, I don't have anything to give tonight. Do you think that maybe some of you guys could just pray for us? We're going through a really hard season. And this room filled with young people, many of them just starting to follow Jesus, surrounded us, and for over an hour, they just prayed for us. And it was one of my top five favorite moments of youth ministry of all time. And I, just, and I was listening to Paul request this church, would you pray for me? And I was reminded of that moment. It's funny how oftentimes I'll run into someone who's in our youth ministry, some of which you actually are in this room, and they'll reference that night. Like, do you remember that night? I'm like, actually, I remember it vividly. It was such a significant moment for me just to model this. I think it's important for us to realize that not only did Paul ask for prayer, Jesus asked for prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, in Matthew 26, he calls his disciples together and he says, stand watch with me, pray with me. He goes and starts praying and when he comes back and they're sleeping and he rebukes them. He says, please pray with me. He goes back again, comes back, and they're sleeping again. This time he doesn't even wake him up. He's like, whatever. And he just comes back and prays with the Father. But I think about for Jesus, right? The person sinless, 
right? But still in his humanity, the dealing with the worry of what's about to come with the cross, what does he do? He asks for prayer. And then just really simply put, um, our first point this morning is this. Maybe some of you guys just need to be better asking for prayer. Text your friends, reach out to your spouse, call your open table. Um, And I, I see it, it's almost like the more affluent a community is, the harder it is we have sharing our need. Because we know we are, we live a privileged and charmed life. And so when we ask for prayer for a sickness, a trial that's going on, we play this inner dialogue of like, yeah, but there's people who have it much worse. As if that totally discredits the pain you're walking through. And I think what Paul and Jesus model for us is ask for prayer. Reveal your hurt, your brokenness. Be a kind of person who actually leads not just out of their gift, but in their humanity. And so we should ask ourselves the question, well, what does Paul ask for prayer for? And he asks for two things. He asks that when he preaches the mysterious gospel, that he would do it fearlessly. So he's asking for clarity and courage. I love what John Stott says in his commentary on the section. He says, pray also for me. Paul begged. He was wise enough to know his own need of restraint if he was to stand against the enemy and humble enough to ask his friends to pray with him for clarity and courage. Clarity without courage is like sunshine in the desert, plenty of light, but nothing worth looking at. This was written before like Palm Springs and like Joshua Tree was like really cool, but Um, plenty to see, but but no light to which to enjoy, oh sorry. Courage without clarity is like a beautiful landscape at night, plenty to see, but no light by which to enjoy it. What is needed is the world, world today is a combination of clarity and courage or the utterance and the boldness. So what Paul is saying is, I have been given this gospel to share, and there's two ingredients I need. I need clarity to explain this mystery, and I need boldness, I need courage to be able to do it. And again, I find so much comfort that Paul, you look at, you, you, sometimes we overemphasize kind of the heroic nature of them as biblical characters. Paul's a guy He's literally writing the Bible, and he's asking for courage. He says, I'm, which essentially insinuates, I'm afraid. And I don't even know what to say. Anyone else identify with that kind of posture when it comes to sharing the gospel? You're like, I don't know what to say, and I'm kind of afraid to do it. Paul's saying, the solution to this is pray. Pray for courage and pray for clarity. And so he does this by honing in on his picture of himself, which is our second point, is knowing your assignment. And he says this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now that word ambassador, it's only used two times in the New Testament, is where I want to spend the rest of our morning zooming in on. Because I think that's the picture we need in order for us to end this series and to leave today with everything that God has for us to understand what does it mean to be an ambassador. So the Greek word is um, presbeo, and here's kind of a definition of when you think of ambassadorship. An ambassador is an authorized representative sent to act and speak on behalf of his or her government in a foreign country. They are tasked with representing the values and ideals of their leaders, their government and their culture to the people in whatever place they have been sent to. Ambassadors work out of an embassy which can 
can be thought of as a micro-kingdom where the sovereignty of their home government exists inside another place. So have that framework in your mind when Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm existing in another world while representing somewhere else. In 1933, President Roosevelt called upon a man named William Dodd. He was a professor in Chicago who spoke German and studied part of his schooling while he was in Germany. And he invited him to be the US ambassador to Germany at the very beginning of the rise of Nazi Germany in 1933. And he called upon him and, he said, and, and William Dodd said, I'm not a politician. And he says, listen, all I need you to do is I need you to meet with these officials because they, the, the German government owes these debts. I need to make sure these debts get paid. And then in his journal, he said privately, he turned to him, he says, also, I need you to address the anti-Semitism that's starting to raise in Germany. I need you to be a representation of American values while you're there. And so he went for the next five years as a representation of the United States while in Germany. And his first year there, he got to have two meetings with um, Adolf Hitler, who was at that point a statesman. And he was talking about the debt that was collecting and the reputation that Germany was building. And immediately in his journal, he starts talking about how Hitler just began to just rail erratically his emotional outburst that it was the Jews that were causing this poor reputation. At that point, William Dodd said, I had no idea how literal he was making this. And within five, within five years from that point, after the night of broken glass, he ended up having, he just retired and went home um, because, of his, because of what was taking place was actually much bigger than what he had realized. And as I was thinking about ambassadorship, I was reminded of this story of what, is, what does it mean to be an ambassador, not only in a foreign place, but in a hostile place. Paul just talked about that we're in a war, right? But it's not a war against flesh and blood. It's something else. So what's our job? What do we do here? And so every ambassador must ask these five questions. What is your homeland? What is your culture? Think about language, values, traditions, what is your authority, or who is your authority? Where is your embassy or your outpost? And why are you there? And so I wanna work through these five different questions that every ambassador must know of themselves. And I want us to be able to see, do we know the answer to these questions as followers of Jesus who are placed in this world, that are being placed in a different sort of place? Number one, and where this all begins is what's your homeland? Where are you from? Now, you might just be like, you know, Phoenix. I don't know. Uh, but the minute you start following Jesus, you've been adopted into a new household, meaning that you now belong to somewhere else. In Paul's other letter he wrote in that same prison cell, he said in Philippians 3.19, says their destiny, talking about the world, is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Meaning that your spiritual passport changed. You don't have dual citizenship anymore. Right? You belong somewhere else. This is your homeland. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I belong to a different home. And while I'm here, I'm on foreign soil. C.S. Lewis, on a radio broadcast, later turned book, 
called Mere Christianity, was addressing the old idiom, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And his response was, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. This is why when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, Jesus began by saying this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. N.T. Wright says that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to, I love this line, colonize earth with the life of heaven. To colonize earth with the life of heaven. Where is your homeland? If you are an ambassador of Christ, simply by carrying that title, meaning this isn't your home. You belong somewhere else, which leads to the second question. If heaven is your homeland, then what is the culture of God's kingdom? What is the culture of heaven? What's the language and the customs and the traditions and the values? Well, in Paul's letter, he kind of lays this out for them. In the beginning of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, he tells them, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 5 says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says, if we are people of heaven, then we carry with us the culture of heaven, the culture of the kingdom of God, which in this letter says it is, is defined as the way of love. We carry with the, those values and that language. Um, Brian and Caitlin Barnes, who are teaching pastors in downtown, who Brian and I wrote this sermon together, um, they have two boys, Judah, who's actually turning eight years old tomorrow, and I believe he's turning eight or nine, nine, and then uh, Caleb, who's five. And coming, moving here nine months ago, their two precious boys have South African accents. And one of the conversations we had was how long until they lose those accents while being here. And Caleb being much younger, the assumption was that would be much quicker. Um, Judah being a little bit older could carry his accent as long as he wants to. And so it was interesting the other day where they're driving in the back of the car and I'm driving them and Judah's sitting with some of our kids and all of a sudden I realized he's not using a South African accent anymore. And like the way he says certain words, it just sounds like just another American kid in the back. And the minute he gets to be with his parents again, he dips back into the South African accent. And we were talking about it, kind of laughing, like how, how strange to go in between these different accents. And, it was, and I, was, I was thinking about this idea of carrying the culture of heaven in this world. It's almost like this. We, we need to be able to speak the language of the world with the accent of heaven. We need to be able to speak the language of the world so that we're understood. But when people see how we live and hear how we talk, they should be able to say, like, where are you from? What is that? It's like, oh, it's heaven. Cardiff? No, heaven. You know, like. <laughs> it's so we carry with us this sense of how we live that 
kind of lets people know, like, okay, you understand what it's like to live here, but you also are you're tied somewhere else. Which leads to our third thing, and this is something really, really critical, is that as an ambassador, you need to know whose authority you're under. You don't just, like being an ambassador isn't like taking like a tourist trip. Like you are there under someone else's authority, under government's authority, or under a king or president's authority while you're there. And so for Paul to say, I'm an ambassador, he's saying, I'm not here on my own authority. I'm under Christ's. And this is a really, really critical and often missed element within the Christian life, is that we follow Jesus, yet we still operate under our own authority. But the very title, Lord, means a surrender to his authority. And so when we live in this world, it's, we, and again, that list, maybe we, can we put it back up on the screen of the five questions every ambassador must ask? What is your homeland? What is your culture? All of these different things. We have answers for these. What is your homeland? Heaven. What is your culture? Love. Who is your authority? Jesus. Where is your embassy? It's right here. So these people, um, why are you here to bring about God's kingdom? But if you, if you look at kind of the secular narrative, how it answers is every single one of these questions is answered with one word, and it's the word self. What is your homeland? It's wherever I am. What is your culture? Self. Who is your authority? Self. Where is your embassy? Me? Why are you here? To please me? And so this is a really important thing for us to live in a culture. And again, we live in the, the higher end of this culture that gives us this narrative that we it's all about fixating and working and forming our life around this. And, but it's understanding our authority is fully submitted somewhere else. We're here because of Jesus. He's the one that we follow our examples under. And so um, I see this take place in my house. If um, my kids um, really don't have like a really like formed like authority structure in terms of their sibling like relationships. Zoe's the oldest, so she like kind of has some, but the minute she's babysitting, Zoe has authority. Or if I'm like, I want to see if like their room's cleaned, if I go tell Vienna to tell her little brother, I'm like, hey, go, I see Augustine's cleaning his room. And she comes back, he's like, he's not. What I say is, go tell him that dad said to clean your room. And I, what I'm doing is I'm giving Vienna dad's authority to communicate a message on behalf of her father. And so when Paul says, I'm an ambassador, what he's saying is, I'm not here under my own accord. I'm here with a message and a mission that's not my own. And I'm here and I'm carrying that. Which leads to a fourth question. Well, if you're an ambassador, then there's some sort of outpost, it's kind of an ancient, more ancient term, or an embassy, or more current context, of where that economy, that government can exist in a smaller section while in the world. And that is the body of Christ. It's the church, it's your open table. It's when we actually get to have what N.T. Wright calls colonies of heaven here on earth. And that's why I so believe in gathering together on Sundays and breaking bread together. It's why I believe in open tables. It's why I believe when I watch um, our friends go down day after day, week after week, uh, on mission together down in Tijuana and doing different things. 
all of these things are setting up colonies of heaven here on earth, these little outposts. And this is what he invites us into. For us to be able to see ourselves differently, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, when he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place. So not only are, do we get to live within an embassy, we are an embassy that houses the presence of God, the authority of God in this foreign land. Because we live, according to a few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 6, where the rulers and authorities of this dark present age are still around. But we're not under their authority anymore. The world may be, but we now have a different authority structure. So where we live and how we live and the authority that we get to have gets to change because of that. Which leads to the last question and a really, really important one, that every ambassador is sent with a mission. So we should ask ourselves the question, why are we here? And by here, I mean literally in this room, in Encinitas, in 2023. Why are you at your job, in your apartment or house? Or why are, is the context of your life, why are you here? I said this earlier, but the word ambassador is only used two times in the New Testament. The other time it's used answers this question. So if you turn back a few books to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, this is the same author, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. What a sentence. Think about this. As though Christ is making his appeal through us. That is what ambassadors do. We are appealing on behalf of our king or our government that sent us. And so what is that appeal? In one word, according to this passage, it is the word reconciliation. Our message and our ministry as ambassadors of Christ is reconciliation, to reconcile. And to reconcile is to take what has been severed, both from God and man and even amongst each other, and to repair that back into order and wholeness. We are sent as ambassadors, as agents of reconciliation. Look at what he says. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And in verse 21 is our message. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you just, if you just like really condensed things, just underline 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is our message. That Jesus, who was without sin, became sin. Didn't just take on your sin. That's kind of the language we use a lot. It says here, read it, became sin, meaning that when Jesus was executed, your sin was executed. When Jesus was crucified, sin was crucified. The one who was without sin became sin. So what? That through the death of that sin, we now have the righteousness of God. 
So now that that sin has been removed, it has been taken away, it has been literally crucified, what is left is for us to wear the righteousness of God. And because we carry the righteousness of Christ, we are back reconciled with God. This is our message. This is our ministry. This is why we are sent. This has specific meaning for me because a couple years ago, um, we got to be invited as a church into a new partnership. Sarah Overby, who now many of you guys know, um, invited me to come visit with Pastor Gustavo down in Tijuana uh, and to see his work that he was doing with refugees. And as I walked and we drove down this dirt, kind of bumpy road and pulled up to this, this large warehouse-looking kind of church building, on the top of the church, there's a sign with the name of the church, and it's called Templo Embajadores de Jesús. Temple of Jesus Christ's ambassadors. And I was like, and I was out there, I'm like, I've never heard of a church called that before. I like it. I was like, wow, this is a house, temple, for the ambassadors of Christ. And I went in and I met this man who I've come to greatly respect. And he began to tell me the story about how 11 years older, God's called him to plant a church. Now, keep this in mind. He was, and still is to this day, a PhD-level law professor at the University in Tijuana. And God called him to put that as now a side project to go plant a church in Scorpion Valley, a place that most people don't even know about because that's where they send their trash and it's where refugees begin to collect. And that's where God called him to plant a temple, a house of ambassadors for Christ a few years after they started this church and people slowly started to come, God gave him a vision of a Haitian man. Um, not at that point, not a lot of Haitians in Tijuana still aren't. And he's driving around the city center and he sees the man in his vision and he goes up to him. And it was at 2014, right after the massive earthquake that, lever, that leveled much of Haiti. And he invited him to come to his church and give him a place to sleep. A word got out and more and more Haitians started coming and he started housing all of these Haitians within his church. And so he began to do research because he's a lawyer of where the Haitian embassy is and there was none in Tijuana. So he filled out the paperwork and his church became the Haitian embassy. And so when you drive up, you'll literally see a Haitian flag as his little Haiti. And, and so he began to, but over the years it's grown from just Haitians, but refugees from... Uh, Michoacan, Honduras, and Colombia find their place. Many of them, I've been there when they show up, come with nothing but maybe a backpack on their back. Moms and children fleeing from severe violence, sexual exploitation, famine, show up there with nothing. And they show up and they're met with a house filled with ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And as I began to talk to Pastor Gustavo for the first time, he says, I have a vision. I'm like, what's, I'm like, this sounds like you're already doing such amazing work. He says, no, my vision is to create Ciudad de Dios, the city of God. He says, you see, these people can't leave because they're not allowed to get jobs. It's not safe for the kids to go play on the soccer fields. They can't go to school, so they just stay here all day and they have nothing to do. I want to create a city for them. And so we began building relationship with him. And through your generosity and the partnership largely has happened through this church, um, we were able to purchase twice the land that they had. In less than two years, which is crazy, thinking about how long city permits to work here, uh, 
They have built two school buildings, a community center, a soccer field, a two-story cafeteria where they now do medical clinics every single week, done by nurses and doctors within our church. Um, and they're about to build housing for more long-term missionaries. And, they, and I was just with Pastor Gustavo last month, and we walked together, and I was like, Ciudad de Dios. He's like, Ciudad de Dios. Like, we have a city of God. And the progression of this, I think we have a picture, actually. Of, this was last Sunday. Um, in between 1,500 and 2,000 refugees are, all the, are there all the time. They feed them three meals a day, give them a place to sleep. And after Sunday service and all these people leave, that room gets filled with bunk beds. Um, and people stay there. There's another place where they stay. But the progression of ambassadors of Jesus cultivating and creating a city of God is like I'm watching before me the, the, the trajectory of what Paul was longing for. And I just was so humbled that I was thinking, like, oh, wow, our church gets to be a part of something that's, this isn't just a theory. But I want to tell you guys, this, this does, just doesn't happen in Mexico. We aren't just called to be ambassadors if you're like a Pastor Gustavo and you like put your law practice aside to go and care for refugees. This is what you and I are all called to be. We're all called to be ambassadors of Christ. Now look at the wording here. Paul says this, I am an ambassador in what? Chains. Meaning, when he's out of prison, when he's no longer in chains, is he still an ambassador? Not a trick question. Yes. He just happens to be an ambassador in chains at the moment. So here's something I want you to do, just a little exercise. If you have a journal, just write down the, the sentence. I am an ambassador in fill in the blank. I am an ambassador in Encinitas. I'm an ambassador for Christ in fatherhood. I'm an ambassador for Christ in motherhood. I'm an ambassador for Christ at my university. I'm an ambassador for Christ in this trial. I'm an ambassador for Christ at my company. I'm an ambassador for Christ in my apartment complex. I'm an ambassador for Christ in my singleness. And I'm an ambassador for Christ in my marriage. I mean, you, you name it. Regardless of your age stage, your wiring, you are an ambassador of Christ. But as long as you just think that's cool for Paul or Pastor Gustavo, you're missing the point. I am an ambassador of Christ in what? You fill it in. And then be start going through those questions. Start going through those questions and you start asking yourselves, well, what, is that, what does that mean for me that my homeland is actually heaven in my motherhood or in my work environment? What does it mean for me that I carry the culture of love, the culture of heaven in my language of a heavenly accent, if you will? What does it mean that within my specific university, I walk under the authority of Jesus, not under the authority of the world or the ruler of this world? What does it mean that I come to this church and that I belong to an open table or I belong to the body of Christ that cows is kind of an embassy for me. That this is a colony of heaven right here on earth. And what does it mean that I am a sent one? I am an ambassador. It's not left up for someone else. This is me in my moment. Can I, can I just have a pastoral moment with you? We need ambassadors here. There, there's so many people who view their, their call to ambassadorship, meaning you have to be someone else. And I just want to say, 
We need more ambassadors in San Diego. We need more ambassadors here on the coast. We need more ambassadors in your work environment. We need more ambassadors in your university. We need more ambassadors in your, in your context. Last night, I, I put down my sermon notes to go push my son on a swing in our neighborhood park. I am being a representation, an extension of the kingdom of heaven for my seven-year-old son by bringing about safety and joy to him. I never take off my ambassador hat. And now my context may change, but that calling of who I am never changes. And so I, have a, I had a third short point, but as I was driving here this morning, I really felt compelled by the Holy Spirit that this needed to end in a different way. I was just praying for you guys, and I was praying over this sermon, and I was like, Lord, what are you doing here? I, was like, I stopped at this moment, and God says, you need to commission this church. That we need to be commissioned. If that's unfamiliar language for you, often this happens when someone's about to be sent out. Think of the word co-mission. You are now, you are word, you're missioning alongside God in something. And I felt like as a church, we need to have a moment just to be commissioned into the kingdom of God's um, reality and presence and work here in our area, in where we are. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. But as we take communion, I want to do a couple of things. Number one, we're going to have a time of just corporate commissioning prayer. Um, I believe that there's going to be some dreams that God's going to stir up again that maybe have been dormant. Um, some passions that God says, I put those there that he wants to kick up. I think there could be people in this room that are called to plant churches, to do missions work. But more likely than not, there are people in this room that are called to do, stay exactly where you are, but just to do it as an ambassador of Christ. But that all of us need this commissioning. But after we pray, we're going to come up, or you're going to take a cup, which represents the blood that was poured out, which is now your righteousness. And you're going to take bread that was broken, which represents the broken body of Christ for your wholeness. And when you go back to your seat, we're not going to take it corporately together. I want you to have a moment. And I want you just to ask the Lord, where am I called? And how, how am I called to be an ambassador of Christ in my specific context, sphere of influence? So you do me a favor, would you stand to your feet with me? Around the same time that William Dodd was a U.S. ambassador in Germany, a German pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to see what was coming about through the rise of the Nazi regime. And one of the things that the Nazi regime did is they took the, the, the church that was run by the state and they began to give them different things that they had to abide by, certain things they could not say, certain things they had to say. And so Bonhoeffer began to collect a group of a couple hundred young pastors in Germany. And he began to train them. Train them around the Sermon on the Mount. They'd memorize scripture together and they'd pray together and create a kind of this, this monastery type environment for training pastors to resist the rise of what Nazism was doing to the church in Germany. 
And one of his friends, Bonhoeffer's friends, visited him one day, and there's this famous story that we've mentioned here before, but I think bears repeating, where he goes and he looks at what Bonhoeffer is doing with all of these young pastors, and he says, isn't this a little bit extreme? Isn't this a little bit intense? And Bonhoeffer calls his friends and takes a walk with them up on this hill that goes up next to the bank of a river, and on the other side of the river is a Nazi training camp where Nazi youth are being trained. And he looks at his friend and pointing back to Finkenwald, which was the the monastery that he had created, he says, this must be stronger than that. And I think it's a picture for us that no matter what happens in this world, we are called to be in it, but yet we are called to be not of it. We may speak, we must speak the language, but we must not lose our heavenly accent. We must be able to be ambassadors of Christ. This must be stronger than that. And so, would you bow your heads with me? And if you'd like, would you put your hands in front of you as if you'd received, not a gift, but receive a call this morning. We're going to call that God would commission you. Spirit of God, would you breathe your life upon each one of these open hands and open hearts? Wake us up from the values and the customs and the ruling and the authority of the world around us, and would you awaken us to the reality that we are ambassadors Christ. Lord, I pray that this this small portion of your body, this local church, would begin to start to swell with passion and mission and love for neighbor in ways we've never seen before. God, I bless our church And God, I commission all of my brothers and sisters in this room that we would see ourselves as sent ones. Lord, I pray that we would pay attention to the unique people and places you've called us to. God, would we respond obediently? Lord, I pray that this would be a rock in our shoe we can't seem to get out because we have to be able to not only see ourselves as adopted into a new family, but now as ambassadors, inviting other people to do the same. So I pray you continue to form this church under the power of your Holy Spirit to be just that. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.